Chapter Fifteen of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Harriet goes away. Girls on the border came to womanhood early. At fifteen, my sister Harriet considered herself a young lady, and began to go out to dances with Cyrus and Albert and Francis. She was small, moody, and silent, and as all her interests became feminine. I lost that sense of comradeship with which we used to ride after the cattle, and I turned back to my brother, who was growing into a hollow-chested lanky lad, and in our little sister Jessie we took increasing interest. She was a joyous child, always singing like a canary. She was never a trial. Though delicate and fair and pretty, she manifested a singular indifference to the usual games of girls contemptuous of dolls she never played house so far as i know she took no interest in sewing or cooking but had a whole yard full of horses that is to say sticks of varying sizes and shapes each pole had its name and its stall and she endlessly repeated the chores of leading them to water and feeding them hay she loved to go with me to the field and was never so happy as when riding on old jewel Dear little sister, I fear I neglected you at times, turning away from your sweet face and pleading smile, to lose myself in some worthless book. I am comforted to remember that I did sometimes lift you to the back of a real horse, and permit you to ride around, chattering like a sparrow as we plodded back and forth across the field. Frank cared little for books, but he could take a hand at games, although he was not strong. Burton who at sixteen was almost as tall as his father, was the last to surrender his saddle to the ash-bin. He often rode his high-headed horse past our house on his way to town, and I especially recall one day when as Frank and I were walking to town, one-fourth of July, Bert came galloping along with five dollars in his pocket. We could not see the five dollars, but we did see the full force and dignity of his cavalier approach and his word was sufficient proof of the cash he had to spend. As he rode on, we, in crushed humility, resumed our silent plodding in the dust of his horse's hooves. His round of labor, like my own, was well established. In spring he drove team and drag. In haying he served a stacker. In harvest he bound his station. In stacking he pitched bundles. After stacking he plowed or went out changing works, and ended the season's work by husking corn, a job that increased in severity from year to year, as the fields grew larger. In seventy-four it lasted well into November. Beginning in the warm and golden September, we kept at it, off and on, until sleety rains coated the ears with ice, and the wet soil loaded our boots with huge balls of clay and grass till the snow came whirling by on the wings of the north wind, and the last flock of belated geese went sprawling sidewise down the ragged sky. Grim business, this. At times our wet gloves froze on our hands. How primitive all our notions were! Few of the boys owned overcoats, and the same suit served each of us for summer and winter alike. In lieu of ulsters, most of us wore long, gay-colored woolen scarfs, wound about our heads and necks, scarfs which our mothers, sisters, or sweethearts had knitted for us. 
our footwear continued to be boots of the tall cavalry model with pointed toes and high heels our collars were either homemade ginghams or boughten ones of paper at fifteen cents per box some men went so far as to wear dickies that is to say false shirt fronts made of paper but this was considered a silly cheat no one in our neighborhood ever saw a tailor-made suit and nothing that we wore fitted our clothes merely enclosed us harriet like the other women made her own dresses assisted by my mother and her best gowns in summer were white muslin tied at the waist with ribbons all the girls dressed in this simple fashion but as i write recalling the glowing cheeks and shining eyes of hattie and agnes and bess i feel again the thrill of admiration which ran through my blood as they came down the aisle of church or when at dancing parties they balanced or sashayed in honest john or money musk to me they were perfectly clothed and divinely fair the contrast between the mcclintocks my hunter uncles and addison garland my father's brother who came to visit us at about this time was strikingly significant even to me tall thoughtful humorous and of frail and bloodless body a garland as he signed himself was of the yankee merchant type a general store in wisconsin was slowly making him a citizen of substance and his quiet comment brought to me an entirely new conception of the middle west and its future he was a philosopher he peered into the years that were to come and paid little heed to the passing glories of the plain he predicted astounding inventions and great cities and advised my father to go into dairying and diversified crops this is a natural butter country said he he was an invalid and it was through him that we first learned of graham flour during his stay and for some time after we suffered an infliction of sticky gems and dark soggy bread we all resented this displacement of our usual salt rising loaf and delicious saleratus biscuits but we ate the hot gems liberally splashed with butter just as we would have eaten dog biscuit or hardtack had it been put before us one of the sayings of my uncle will fix his character in the mind of the reader one day apropos of some public event which displeased him he said men can be infinitely more foolish in their collective capacity than on their own individual account his quiet utterance of these words and especially the phrase collective capacity made a deep impression on me the underlying truth of the saying came to me only later in life he was full of citrus belt enthusiasm and told us that he was about to sell out and move to santa barbara he did not urge my father to accompany him and if he had it would have made no difference a winterless climate and the raising of fruit did not appeal to my commander he loved the prairie and the raising of wheat and cattle and gave little heed to anything else but to me addison's talk of the citrus belt had the value of a romance and the occasional spanish phrases which he used afforded me an indefinable delight it was unthinkable that i should ever see an arroyo but i permitted myself to dream of it while he talked i think he must have encouraged my sister in her growing desire for an education for in the autumn after his visit she entered the cedar valley seminary at osage and her going produced in me a desire to accompany her i said nothing of it at the time 
for my father gave but reluctant consent to Harriet's plan. A district school education seemed to him ample for any farmer's needs. Many of our social affairs were now connected with the Grange. During these years on the new farm, while we were busied with breaking and fencing and raising wheat, there had been growing up among the farmers of the West a social organization officially known as the Patrons of Husbandry. The places of meeting were called Granges, and very naturally the members were at once called Grangers. My father was an early and enthusiastic member of the order, and during the early seventies its meetings became very important dates on our calendar. In winter, oyster suppers with debates, songs, and essays drew us all to the Baroque Grove schoolhouse, and each spring, on the 12th of June, the Grange picnic was a grand turnout. It was almost as well attended as the circus. We all looked forward to it for weeks, and every young man who owned a top buggy got it out and washed and polished it for the use of his best girl, and those who were not so fortunate as to own a rig paid high tribute to the livery stable of the nearest town. Others, less able or less extravagant, doubled teams with a comrade and built a bowery wagon out of a wagon box, and with hampers heaped with food rode away in state, drawn by a four or six horse team. It seemed a splendid and daring thing to do, and some day I hope to drive a six horse bowery wagon myself. The central place of meeting was usually in some grove along the big cedar to the west and south of us, and early on the appointed day the various lodges of our region came together one by one at convenient places, each one moving in procession and led by great banners, on which the women had blazoned the motto of their home lodge. Some of the columns had bands, and came preceded by far faint strains of music, with marshals in red sashes galloping to and fro in fine assumption of military command. It was grand, it was inspiring, to us, to see those long lines of carriages winding down the lanes, joining one to another at the crossroads, till at last all the granges from the northern end of the county were united in one mighty column advancing on the picnic ground, where orators awaited our approach with calm dignity and high resolve. Nothing more picturesque, more delightful, more helpful, has ever risen out of American rural life. Each of these assemblies was a most grateful relief from the sordid loneliness of the farm. Our winter amusements were also in process of change. We had no more singing schools. The Lyceum had taken its place. Revival meetings were given up, although few of the church folk classed them among the amusements. The county fair, on the contrary, was becoming each year more important as farming diversified. It was even more glorious than the Grange picnic, was indeed second only to the 4th of July, and we looked forward to it all through the autumn. It came late in September and always lasted three days. We all went on the second day, which was considered the best day, and Mother, by cooking all the afternoon before her outing, provided us a dinner of cold chicken and cake and pie which we ate while sitting on the grass beside our wagon, just off the racetrack, while the horses munched hay and oats from the box. All around us other families were grouped, picnicking in the same fashion. 
and a cordial interchange of jellies and pies made the meal a delightful function. However, we boys never lingered over it. We were afraid of missing something on the program. Our interest in the races was especially keen, for one of the citizens of our town owned a fine little trotting horse called Huckleberry, whose honest friendly striving made him a general favorite. Our survey of fat sheep, broad-backed bulls, and shining colts was a duty, but to cheer Huckleberry at the home stretch was a privilege. To us from the farm, the crowds were the most absorbing show of all. We met our chums and their sisters with a curious sense of strangeness, of discovery. Our playmates seemed alien somehow, especially the girls in their best dresses, walking about two and two, impersonal and haughty of glance. Cyrus and Walter were there in their top buggies with Harriet and Betty, but they seemed to be having a dull time, for while they sat holding their horses, we were dodging about in freedom. Now at the contest of draft horses, now at the sledgehammer throwing, now at the candy booth. We were comical figures, with our long trousers, thick gray coats, and faded hats, but we didn't know it and were happy. One day, as Burton and I were wandering about on the fairgrounds, we came across a patent medicine cart from which a faker, a handsome fellow with long black hair and an immense white hat, was addressing the crowd while a young and beautiful girl with a guitar in her lap sat in weary relaxation at his feet. A third member of the troupe, a short and very plump man of commonplace type, was handing out bottles. It was Dr. Leitner vending his magic oil. At first I perceived only the doctor, whose splendid gray suit and spotless linen made the men in the crowd rustic and graceless. But, as I studied the woman, I began to read into her face a sadness, a weariness, which appealed to my imagination. Who was she? Why was she there? I had never seen a girl with such an expression. She saw no one, was interested in nothing before her, and when her master, or husband, spoke to her in a low voice, she raised her guitar and joined in the song which he had started all with the same air of weary disgust. Her voice, a childishly sweet soprano, mingled with the robust baritone of the doctor and the shouting tenor of the fat man, like a thread of silver in a skein of brass. I forgot my dusty clothes, my rough shoes. I forgot that I was a boy. Absorbed in dreaming, I listened to these strange new songs and studied the singular faces of these alien songsters. Even the shouting tenor had a faraway gleam in the yellow light of his cat-like eyes. The leader's skill, the woman's grace, and the perfect blending of their voices made an ineffaceable impression on my sensitive, farm-bred brain. The songs which they sang were not in themselves of a character to warrant this ecstasy in me. One of them ran as follows. O oh, Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was black as jet, in the little old log cabin in the lane, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb went too, you bet, in the little old log cabin in the lane, in the little old log cabin, oh, the little old log cabin, oh, the little old log cabin in the lane, they're hanging men and women now for singing songs like this, in the little old log cabin in the lane. 
Nevertheless, I listened without a smile. It was art to me. It gave me something I had never known. The large, white, graceful hand of the doctor sweeping the strings, the clear singing shout of the tenor, and the chiming, bird-like voice of the girl, lent to the absurd words of this ballad a singular dignity. They made all other persons and events of the day of no account. In the intervals between the songs, the doctor talked of catarrh and its cure, and offered his medicines for sale. And in this dull part of the program, the tenor assisted, but the girl, sinking back in her seat, resumed her impersonal and weary air. That was forty years ago, and I can still sing those songs and imitate the whoop of the shouting tenor, but I have never been able to put that woman into verse or fiction, although I have tried. In a story called Love or the Law, I made a laborious attempt to account for her, but I did not succeed, and the manuscript remains at the bottom of my desk. No doubt the doctor has gone to his long account, and the girl is a gray old woman of sixty-five, but in this book they shall be forever young, forever beautiful, noble with the grace of art. The medicine they peddled was of doubtful service, but the songs they sang, the story they suggested, were of priceless value to us who came from the monotony of the farm, and went back to it like bees, laden with the pollen of new intoxicating blooms. Sorrowfully, we left Huckleberry's unfinished race. Reluctantly, we climbed into the farm wagon, sticky with candy, dusty, tired, some of us suffering with sick headache, and rolled away homeward to milk the cows, feed the pigs, and bed down the horses. As I look at a tintype of myself, taken at about this time, I can hardly detect the physical relationship between that mop-headed, long-lipped lad and the gray-haired man of today. But the coat, the tie, the little stick-pin on the lapel of my coat, all unite to bring back to me with painful stir the curious debates, the boyish delights, the dawning desires which led me to these material expressions of manly pride. There is a kind of pathos, too, in the memory of the keen pleasure I took in that absurd ornament, and yet my joy was genuine, my satisfaction complete. Harriet came home from school each Friday night, but we saw little of her, for she was always engaged for dances or socials by the neighbor's sons, and had only a young lady's interest in her cub brothers. I resented this, and was openly hostile to her admirers. She seldom rode with us to spelling schools or sociables. There was always some youth with a cutter, or some noisy group in a big bobsleigh to carry her away, and on Monday morning father drove her back to the county town with growing pride in her improving manners. Her course at the seminary was cut short in early spring by a cough which came from a long ride in the keen wind. She was very ill with a wasting fever, yet for a time refused to go to bed. She could not resign herself to the loss of her school life. The lack of room in our house is brought painfully to mind, as I recall that she lay for a week or two in a corner of our living room, with all the noise and bustle of the family going on around her. Her own attic chamber was unwarmed, like those of her girlfriends, and so she was forced to lie near the kitchen stove. She grew rapidly worse all through the opening days of April, 
and as we were necessarily out in the fields at work, and mother was busied with her household affairs, the lonely sufferer was glad to have her bed in the living room, and there she lay, her bright eyes following mother at her work, growing wider and wider, until one beautiful, tragic morning in early May, my father called me in to say good-bye to her. She was very weak, but her mind was perfectly clear, and as she kissed me farewell with a soft word about being a good boy, I turned away blinded with tears and fled to the barnyard, there to hide like a wounded animal, appalled by the weight of despair and sorrow which her transfigured face had suddenly thrust upon me. All about me the young cattle called. The spring sun shone and the gay fowls sang, but they could not mitigate my grief, my dismay, my sense of loss. My sister was passing from me. That was the agonizing fact which benumbed me. She who had been my playmate, my comrade, was about to vanish into air and earth. This was my first close contact with death, and it filled me with awe. Human life suddenly seemed fleeting, and of a part with the impermanency and change of the westward-moving borderline. Like the wildflowers she had gathered, Harriet was now a fragrant memory. Her dust mingled with the soil of the little burial ground just beyond the village bounds. My mother's heart was long in recovering from the pain of this loss. But at last, Jessie's sweet face, which had in it the light of the sky and the color of a flower, won back her smiles. The child's acceptance of the funeral, as a mere incident of her busy little life, in some way enabled us all to take up and carry forward the routine of our shadowed home. Those years on the plain, from seventy-one to seventy-five, held much that was alluring, much that was splendid. I did not have an exceptional life in any way. My duties and my pleasures were those of the boys around me. In all essentials my life was typical of the time and place. My father was counted a good and successful farmer. Our neighbors all lived in the same restricted fashion as ourselves, in barren little houses of wood or stone, owning few books, reading only weekly papers. It was a pure democracy wherein my father was a leader, and my mother beloved by all who knew her. If anybody looked down upon us we didn't know it, and in all the social affairs of the township we fully shared. Nature was our compensation. As I look back upon it I perceive transcendent sunsets, and a mighty sweep of golden grain beneath a sea of crimson clouds. The light and song and motion of the prairie return to me. I again hear the shrill, myriad-voiced choir of leaping insects, whose wings flash fire amid the glorified stubble. The wind wanders by, lifting my torn hat-rim. The locusts rise in clouds before my weary feet. The prairie hen soars out of the unreaped barley and drops into the sheltering deeps of the tangled oats, green as emerald. The lone quail pipes in the hazel thicket, and far up the road the cowbell's steady clang tells of the homecoming herd. Even in our hours of toil, and through the sultry skies, the sacred light of beauty broke. Worn and grimed as we were, we still could fall a dream before the marvel of a golden earth 
beneath a crimson sky. End of chapter 15